All those who are holding tickets outside will get in as fast as they can. I'm speaking not to you, ladies and gentlemen. I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing rather reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this very soon. Welcome back to Worthy. I'm Ben. And I'm John. And on this episode of Worthy, we are talking about the 41st Best Picture winner, Oliver, and the 41st Academy Awards. I put a big emphasis on Oliver because there's a big exclamation point at the end of the title of the film's name, and I would love to talk more about that. But, John, what I really want to talk about is the end of the musical era in our discussion on these podcasts and Oscar history. And I'm not saying the musicals go away entirely. They, they stay around. There's even another one that wins Best Picture, and who knows, there could be more that win Best Picture in the coming years. But it's the end of musicals for the majority of the rest of the Oscars for the first 41 years. We've had such musicals as The Broadway Melody, The Great Zigfield, Going My Way, An American in Paris, Gigi, West Side Story, My Fair Lady, The Sound of Music, and Oliver that have won Best Picture that have also been musicals. So, John, just from that group of musical films, is there one that sticks out the most as not just your favorite, but the one that does the musical film the best? Man, that is a hard question. I would probably say The Sound of Music as my favorite. I mean, I, we, we kind of gushed over how much I love that film. It's my mom's favorite movie of all time. I think it balances having a really good story while being dramatic and also being a fun musical at the same time. But I also think of, you know, West Side Story is up there as well. And, and American in Paris, I think, is like, I mean, we're talking about 1951 now. So over 25 years later, uh, or excuse me, 15 years later, we're still making musicals and I think American Paris is a great kind of groundwork of the colored musical and having a lot of bright primary colors and a lot of dancing from Gene Kelly. But yeah, I think I would have to say the sound of music, but Ben, what about you? What would you choose as one of your favorite of the the musical so far? Yeah, I would say sound of music and I'd also say West side story as two of the prime examples of how to do a musical and how to do it. Well, make it, you know, take it from the stage and put it, on the film, I mean, we're also just talking about the movies that won Best Picture because, you know, you can include a film like Singing in the Rain, which many people not just consider it the best musical, but like the best, one of the best films that has been made from that old Hollywood era. So it it goes back and forth, but I think that The Sound of Music, West Side Story from just Best Picture winners are the prime examples of musical films. And so my next question to you, John, is like, why do you think there was such a, a gap? Do you think that like, can you tell from Oliver? Like, is it Oliver's fault that we stopped having movie musicals? Or was it just a change uh, of heart, a change of view and liking? Because even in today's world, people love musicals. But I think people would flock to the theaters if there were musicals out, you know? So, I yeah. don't know. I just want to get that sense from you of, like, the forty almost 40-year 40 gap between Oliver and then 2002 when Chicago won. I think we even saw it back in 1965 with The Sound of Music where we saw some critics just panning that film as being like overly bright and happy and not enough stakes and not enough like serious uh, filmmaking I guess is what you would expect at the time and I think when especially when we come off of In the Heat of the Night where it's such a grounded gritty film that is supposed to be very realistic and it's supposed to be like you are actually there on the streets with these characters and then you go back to something as bright and just kind of fake and exuberant like a musical and it's quite jarring and I think at this point now 
we're kind of leaning into the late 60s and we're leaning into these more experimental films and we're leaning into films that are more dramatic. They're more violent. They're more in your face and, and they're made by auteurs that we're seeing like styles of direction that we've never really seen before. And I think it's just leaning towards that. And I think we're kind of getting over and tired and really just overwhelmed with how many musicals we are and we've gone through. And I think at this point in cinema, we're kind of, kind of established our own medium. Like we're beyond just adapting plays. We're beyond just adapting books. We're making some amazing films that are standing own as their own pieces of art. So I think it has to do with that. I think we're just kind of breaking past musicals as a main form in in film and we're kind of pushing beyond it and trying to make our own films tell our own unique stories and especially as I know it's crazy to say now but in the late 60s and to the 70s film becomes more accessible with at-home cameras and while it still was expensive and you had to process it and it took a lot longer compared to our digital age now I think we're starting to see filmmaking tools get into the hands of creators like the young Spielbergs of the time so that's kind of my thoughts on it but Ben tell me why you think that there's such a long period between our film here Oliver until 2002 when Chicago won best picture yeah I think it's just a change of of what people like and enjoy it's a changing of the times I think that it it's also who's like in charge a lot of the people that were in charge of movies from all these musical films that we have talked about at this point, uh, when you know, in the year uh, when we're, we're going to go into '69 in the next episode, just it probably has to be like just new age group, new age thinking, and which is funny to say because now we're like get the old Hollywood, so this generation of people who are making movies like out, so that we can have new voices, new thoughts, new ideas. So I think that's just really it. I think it's just like a change of the guard. It's a new way of thinking, a new way of showing movies, and I've talked before about like, oh, this is like the end of our parent or our grandparents this is the beginning of our parents and this is like like that last like stop at the edges of disney that's just like hey like this is it like once you step past this point like totally different feel totally different like world of cinema like you're not in the disneyland park anymore of old hollywood now you're in the the real world and that's a great thing i think for hollywood and and movies and telling stories is that what we're going to enter to next within the next you know 40 years is going to be grit honesty there's a a lot of human experiences and connections that we'll get to talk about and and discuss and i think it's one of the good things that comes out of this old hollywood is that well what can we do now what can we do that's different what can we do that feels fresh and it's talking about human condition experiences that become a big focal point and even still in today's world so although now I, i still do truly think that if musicals like a West Side Story is being, you know, being remade. Like, if there was more movie musicals, like a Hamilton, even, like, that is what's going to drive a lot of people to movies and to watch and to talk about because so many people are, are into it. So, I, you know, we've covered a lot when it comes to talking about movie musicals and movies in general, but we have to tackle Oliver. So, John, is Oliver worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1968? <laughs> Oliver. After being sold to a mortician, young orphan Oliver Twist runs away and meets a group of boys trained to be pickpockets by an elderly mentor in 1830s London. At a workhouse in Dunstable, orphans are served their daily gruel, 
a group of boys draw lots, with Oliver drawing the tangled one, forcing him to approach Mr. Bumble and the widow Corny and ask, Please, sir, may I have some more? Enraged, Bumble takes Oliver to the governor's for punishment and then parades Oliver in the street to sell him off as an apprentice. Mr. Sourberry, an undertaker, buys Oliver, but Sourberry's other apprentice, Noah Claypool, bullies Oliver. When Oliver retaliates, Oliver is thrown first into a coffin and then into the cellar where he laments his lack of a family. Suddenly, he discovers the window grate is unlocked and Oliver escapes. Weeks later, Oliver reaches London. He meets the artful Dodger, who instantly takes him under his wing. Dodger brings Oliver to a hideout for young pickpockets led by Fagin, who instructs the gang in the art of stealing. Fagin later meets with Bill Sykes, a burglar, while Sykes' girlfriend Nancy joyfully remarks on low-class life. Oliver wakes up, notices Fagin's secret, and startles the man, who explains that the trove is to help him in his old age. In the morning, Nancy and her friend Bet arrive at the hideout to collect Sykes' money. The boys mock Oliver for his good manners, which Nancy finds charming. Fagin sends the boys out for the day, teaming Oliver with Dodger. At a bookstall, Dodger steals a wallet from Mr. Brownlow, who quickly mistakes Oliver for being the thief and has police arrest him. Fearing Oliver will rat out the gang, Fagin and Sykes send Nancy to court, where Oliver is too terrified to speak. Fortunately, the bookseller, Mr. Jessup, testifies that Oliver is innocent. Brownlow takes Oliver in, while Sykes and Fagin send Dodger to follow them to Nancy's displeasure. Oliver wakes up in Mr. Brownlow's luxurious house and happily watches the merchants and the inhabitants of Bloomsbury Square from the balcony. Fagin and Sykes decide to abduct Oliver and bring him back to the den with Nancy's help. Nancy, who has come to care for Oliver, at first refuses to help, but Sykes physically abuses her, forcing her into obedience. In spite of this, Nancy still loves Sykes and believes he loves her too. The next morning, Mr. Brownlow sends Oliver on an errand. Before he departs, Oliver notices a portrait painting of a beautiful young girl. Mr. Brownlow notes Oliver's resemblance to the girl, his niece Emily, who disappeared years ago. He begins to suspect he may be Oliver's great uncle. During the errand, Nancy and Sykes grab Oliver and bring him back to Fagin's den. A quarrel ensues over Oliver's future and who keeps the items that Mr. Brownlow entrusted to Oliver. Oliver's resistance goads Sykes into beating him, but Nancy stays Sykes' hand. Nancy remorsefully reviews their life, but Sykes maintains that any living is better than none. Fagin tries to soothe Sykes' temper, prompting Sykes to declare that if anyone ratted them out, Sykes will kill Fagin. Once Sykes and Nancy leave, Fagin considers abandoning his criminal life, but each imagined alternative proves just as untenable. Bumble and Corny pay a visit to Brownlow after he begins searching for Oliver's origin. They present a locket belonging to Oliver's mother, who arrived at the workhouse penniless and died during childbirth. Brownlow recognizes the locket as his niece and throws the two out, enraged that they selfishly chose to keep the trinket and information to themselves until they could collect a reward for it. Meanwhile, in an attempt to introduce Oliver to a life of crime, Syke forces Oliver to take part in a house robbery. The robbery fails when Oliver accidentally awakens the occupants, but he and Sykes get away. Nancy, fearful for Oliver's life, goes to Brownlow, confessing her part in Oliver's kidnapping. 
However, she refuses to state the name of Fagin or Bill Sykes for her own protection. She promises to return him to Brownlow at midnight at London Bridge. She then goes to the tavern. When Sykes and Oliver appear, Sykes orders his dog, Bullseye, to guard the boy. Nancy starts up a lively drinking song, hoping that the noise will distract Sykes. Bullseye, however, alerts Sykes, who gives chase. As Oliver and Nancy share a farewell embrace at London Bridge, Sykes catches up and grabs both of them and throws Oliver aside. Nancy then tries to pull Sykes away, angering him. He then drags her behind the staircase of London Bridge and violently bludgeons her, injuring her fatally. He then takes off with Oliver, but Bullseye returns to the scene where Nancy has succumbed to her injuries and alerts the police. The dog leads Brownlow and an angry mob to the thieves' hideout. Syke arrives at Fagin's den and demands money, revealing that he killed Nancy as well. Upon seeing the approaching mob, the thieves disband and flee. Sykes run off of Oliver, using him as a hostage. During the evacuation, Fagin loses his prized possessions, which sink into mud. Sykes attempts to flee to an adjacent roof, but is shot dead in the process by the police. Fagin makes up his mind to change his ways for good. Just as he is about to walk away, a reformed character, Dodger appears from nowhere with a wallet he stole earlier. They dance off into the sunrise together, happily determined to live out the rest of their days as thieves, while Oliver returns to Brownlow's home for good. Oliver is directed by Carol Reed. Written by Vernon Harris, based on the book by Lionel Bart, adapted from Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. Produced by John Wolfe. Music by Lionel Bart, and uncredited work to Johnny Green. Cinematography by Oswald Morris. Film editing by Ralph Kemplin. Production design by John Box. Costume design by Phyllis Dalton. Oliver stars Ron Moody as Fagin. Shaney Wallace as Nancy. Oliver Reed as Bill Sykes. Harry Seccom as Bumble. Mark Lester as Oliver. Jack Wilde as the Artful Dodger. Hugh Griffith as the Magistrate and Joseph O'Connor as Mr. Brownlow. So, Ben, I wanted to ask you right away, right off the top, what do you know about Oliver Twist? Did you have to read it in school? Do you know much about the story? Before even watching Oliver back in however long it's been now, 2020, whenever you started <laughs> this journey, how much do you know about Oliver Twist? I, I knew a good amount. I, I saw it as a play when I was younger. Um, I don't remember if it was with my camp or with my school, but I, I saw it and I, you know, I had a good idea about some of the things, but obviously then rewatching it the first time a couple of years ago, uh, totally, under, you know, I understood the story was a little bit more. And this time I think I, I think I have it by at this point, what Oliver <laughs> is about. Uh, what about you? Did you have any idea what Oliver twist was about? I had no clue. Like I, of course, I've heard of Oliver Twist. Of course, it's come up occasionally. Charles Dickens being like the huge. Please, sir, may I have some more lines? Yeah, like of course, I've heard lines like that. You know, food, glorious food. Like I've heard that song before, and I'm sure it came from like some sort of like mocking of the song, something from like 
I don't know, Comedy Central that like or even like South Park, like, you know, there's like these weird references to a lot of Charles Dickens work that have been so mixed and and converted and changed that like at this point in our history, (laughs) we experience a lot of Charles Dickens work, not actually from his own work. Right. It's like always adapted and changed and kind of like mixed up and it becomes entirely different. So I really had no idea what Oliver Twist was about. I really didn't know anything about the story. I didn't even really know that uh, the police may have some more even came from this film until I started the film. And within minutes, I knew the introduction song. So I have no idea like where this even comes from my brain or how this ever even got stuck up in there. But no, I definitely remember some of the music and I don't know, maybe I watched it when I was a kid and at this point I don't even remember. Like maybe I went to like an off Broadway or on Broadway version, but I don't remember. So I just wanted to ask you right off the top, just cause it's interesting. I don't, I think this is like the first Charles Dickens like adaptation that we've had to watch for the podcast. If I'm not mistaken. And uh, I was just kind of curious. Yeah. Yeah, I was just kind of curious overall. But, Ben, where do you want to start from here about Oliver, the 1968 film? I, I said this before we started recording, and I and I kind of half joked about it in the cold open, but I actually really want to establish, is this movie Oliver or is it Oliver? Because there's an exclamation point, and it's like the only movie that's like that. There's not many, like, the only thing I can think of immediately is Tick, Tick, Boom, where <laughs> it really emphasizes that. And but this is like why like why Oliver why not Oliver Twist like as many know it it, uh, it seems very weird to me but I guess that's also the musical that's based off of so I just want to establish that is it Oliver or are we doing Oliver no you got it I the to me it's Oliver you know Oliver like you're yelling out Oliver chasing after a little boy right which is kind of very much of the story and of Oliver Twist you know he's like a little mischief kid who's just constantly kind of being chased or running away and i think it's just you know to yell oliver like we're after him you know and we also had a david lean who made oliver twist back in the late 40s i believe (laughs) which is so which is so weird yeah like it's in the 40s and alec guinness was in it um and uh, i know that that character was pretty controversial just because people thought that he looked too much of like a stereotype of a jewish person well, we should definitely Which, talk about that for sure in this well, film. Well, in particular let's just talk about it right now, I guess. Let's just talk about it right now because then you look at Ron Moody, who his thing was that he was a Jewish person from England mm-hmm. who was like putting on sort of like an accent of what you would assume this person to sound like. I think kind of basing off of the Alec and his character. But he didn't want to you know, be put into this box of like, oh, that's anti-Semitic. But he's like, but I'm Jewish still at the same time. So that that is really interesting when it comes to Ron Moody's approach and well, the look of this character. But and I've looked at the Alec Guinness pictures and they're they're not like I definitely see it and like it's not great when you like point that out. But if you didn't point that out, I wouldn't have thought much of it. Interesting. Yeah, it's funny because what did I say right away? Like usually I'll watch the film and then we'll have a little chat over text and right away without even looking at the cast any anyone. The the person who plays Fagin is Ron Moody, as we establish. But right away, I was just like, I thought that was Alec Guinness. Like, I just said it right away. And <laughs> I had no knowledge of 1948's Oliver Twist by David Lean, who is, is Fagin is, you know, Alec Guinness in that film. So I just was kind of taken aback when I found that out, too, and just how weird that was, that that, that connection was, like, there in my head. But, yeah, it's he's yeah. so much more of, a like, a caricature in 
Oliver Twist from 1948, and I haven't seen the film, but from the trail that I've seen, he looks a lot more exaggerated, even though Fagin is, is quite an exaggerated character. But I do like how he's toned down. I think, really, I think most people with nose prosthetics in film, is it's ex- ex- extremely distracting. There's something about the nose and being like the center p- point focal point of a face that when you put a fake nose on it just like is so obvious Uh, there's like a few handfuls of of like makeup performances that you can kind of point to where you're like it's so good it's barely noticeable but I think for something something in particular about being that like center point of people's faces it's kind of quite distracting and I liked Fagin character I think we both kind of thought that Ron Moody's performance as Fagin was one of the most interesting aspects of this film because he's not one note he's both like you know insidious and he has this darker side to him and he has all these children under his wing and that's like has a creepy element to him but at the same time you know looking past his obsession with money and wealth and and gold and everything that comes along with it he seems to actually care for these kids in in a way that's not (laughs) you know like a loving father like the perfect relationship of you know a father and son relationship but there's definitely some care like he actually has some care for these children and you're laughing now so i'm guessing you don't agree or am i just going too far i know i just think that's such a funny thing because literally the only line i wrote down from the movie is and i guess maybe fagan was being a little comforting and and and, uh nurturing in this moment but he, you know, this is the beginning when you first meet everybody, when Oliver first gets taken to the hideout and, like, meets all the other boys and stuff. And Fagin cooks sausages for everybody. Yeah. And he puts it down and a kid goes, these sausages are moldy. <laughs> and Fagin just goes, shut up and drink your gin. <laughs> <laughs> See, look at what a nice, what a nice father. <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that line and delivery is amazing (laughs) shut up and drink your gin (laughs) it is kind of funny too because when we open up with food glorious food and the kids are singing about how they wish they had hot sausage and mustard and then later on he does meet kids that have their hot sausage but they're just moldy sausages (laughs) oh mustard i thought you said moldy (laughs) so this kid can't win but since I mentioned that, I mean, what an amazing opening to this film. Like, yeah, let's go Let's go to the intro to this movie. It is so great. I mean, the production design, I think, is one of the best parts of this entire film. And I think it really shines in this kind of, like, dark and moody factory. A children's slave factory. I, I don't even know what to call it, really. But, th- but that. It's, isn't it know? called Workplace? Isn't they I just the call it Workplace. Work. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a child slave factory. Let's let's be clear, where they feed children gruel, which is just like gray slop. But <laughs> yeah, what a great musical number! I mean, we have a bunch of young kids, uh, young boys in particular, who are all kind of you know doing their work, and then it's lunchtime, and then we kind of have the transitioning of of them kind of moving in tandem and singing and. What of like a big boisterous song too with this like boys choir singing about food. Nothing made me laugh more though is thinking about how British people and the the constant nag that people always have against British people is that their food sucks, which I highly disagree, especially in London. I mean, I think that's one of the best food cities yeah. in, in the entire planet, but it's just hilarious to have all these kids who are eating gruel and they're so sad and they just want to eat food, but the only food that they can think of 
is hot sausage and mustard. It's like, come on, guys, <laughs> stream a little bigger than that. Like, come on, boys. Hot sausage and uh, mustard? Cold I custard? Mean, you don't come like, on. You, you, you don't like a little, little sausage and, and mustard <laughs> once in a while? I mean, it just shows how bad British food is. But beggars can't be choosers here, John. <laughs> you know, they, these kids are orphans. <laughs> I'm sure, sure they love to be home with a home cooked meal of with parents and all, but you uh, know what? Let them have their fucking sausage and mustard. <laughs> I just love the American version of this, where it's just like cheeseburger and fries, <laughs> 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 donuts and coffee. <laughs> uh, I don't know what Oliver Holy Twist would be named in the American version, but. That's definitely know. the I food mean, they so, would sing about. <laughs> he's so irrelevant to the plot, honestly, <laughs> after this whole intro. <laughs> so, like, yeah, so Food Glory's food is great, but then he just gets sold onto the street where Mr. Bumble's like, boy for sale. Who wants boy. a boy for sale? One boy. Which, why is that song so about good, how, though? Like, they, they sell little boys for sale <laughs> on the streets. <laughs> and then and then we have a homeless guy, Fagan, who just keeps them all to himself. <laughs> In this underground, <laughs> right, actually, it's, it's above ground. <laughs> there's a there's a lot of weird shit going on. I love boy uh, for sale. One boy. boy. It's like the most dramatic <laughs> song, and no one will even buy this boy for like three pounds. Like, come on, that sounds like I mean, a steal. Like, I know. Well, no one had three pounds. They're too <laughs> busy spending on mustard and sausage. <laughs> oh my god! But like. But okay, so the whole this like whole like intro, which is like twenty minutes, um, <laughs> where Oliver just says, "Can I please have some more?" Then his whole entire life gets ripped away <laughs> away from him from this orphanage. Which, which after knew, seeing just, that, wouldn't you be like, "I'm gonna ask for more" because he got to escape. <laughs> like he literally gets <laughs> let out. So all these other boys, wouldn't they be like, "I got to do the same thing"? Like that dude's on the street now. Like living his own life shut up and drink your gin job <laughs> well you think the gruel is made out of like <laughs> other little boys <laughs> no <laughs> oh, we're off the we're so off the rails and like <laughs> And uh, and honestly, that's just this movie. <laughs> this movie is. <laughs> this movie doesn't even have rails. This... But that's why I wanted to establish with you, like, wh- how much do you know about Oliver Twist? Because this really took me by surprise. I was like, this is <laughs> insane. Like, who thought of this story? And like, how- Charles what Dickens. The- Charles <laughs> Dickens did. He must have been on opium or something back then. I don't know what he I, was doing. I, yeah, and there's like, there's like other characters involved. I, there's some. There's some character who like blackmails Oliver at the end of it for like I think almost like half the money that he actually gets at the end, <laughs> which uh, it's just ridiculous. Okay, anyway, this, oh yeah, so this intro, <laughs> intro, boy, boy gets sold off. Oliver is just like I hate my life. I'm with these funeral people. He escapes. He sings a beautiful song. Um, where 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 is love? Beautiful, beautifully sung and, and very dramatic. And then he just escapes. And then, <laughs> like. Oliver kind of just doesn't have any importance to the rest of the story besides that he gets tra- like he gets uh picked up by the police because they think that he steals a book by the end of Act One, and then they try to like st- then they steal him back to make sure he didn't say anything, and then he just uses a hostage. He has no importance <laughs> to the rest of the story besides being just a character that 
Dickens that Cal Reed are just emphasizing and putting like the point of view for this movie and it's honestly like what makes this movie so like meh because I mean we don't I don't want to bash child acting but it's really bad it's nothing great yeah I don't think the child performances are like bad that it's hard to even watch it's more I, I do agree with you to a sense where it's that he just doesn't have enough to do and I think it's more so about his character's agency is that once he reaches the group and he reaches Fagin and gets to meet Artful Dodger, it's just like that's he found his community, he found his home. And at that point, there's just nothing else for him to do other than run. And like he is an important character in this film. Obviously the name is <laughs> the movie is named Oliver. He is the central character in this film but he just doesn't have any agency after the first 30 minutes once he finds this group then it just he becomes like a pawn almost like he needs to learn the situation and then like you said he gets taken into court and then he gets taken to what is actually his real family and then he gets kidnapped and it becomes like he just becomes a pawn and like an objective in in this film instead of actually being our main protagonist who like leads the charge and makes decisions and changes things and I don't think it's more evident than the last 20-30 minutes of the movie where he's just literally just like crying in the corner of like every scene this movie is really weird i I just have to say it is so bizarre that i don't know man it's hard to even like call this movie oliver because it just there's no way this is one-to-one like for the book but that's fine it 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 is i don't think it is i mean i haven't read oliver twist but there really isn't like that it can't be too far off but also well, there's a lot of like, well, what are the chances kind of moments? Like, what are the chances that the person that uh, that thinks Oliver is stealing from them happens to be his great uncle? <laughs> like, you know, like, like what? What are the chances? <laughs> Just by looking at a painting. <laughs> what are the chances that the first person that Oliver meets when he goes to London is the Artful Dodger? What are the chances? Literally, he like steps into London, opening shot, and then like one shot later, he's like, "Who's this little boy?" He's like just creepily watching him too. Like it's yeah. like, "What are you doing, Oliver? Like you just got into London. You're gonna get your ass kicked." Like he's just like looking around. <laughs> Oliver, don't you know any better? He's, <laughs> he, he's just looking around, just staring at this little boy. And I was just like, what is he doing? Like, what is this character doing? And I think he's supposed to be amused. I think he looks at this, like, young kid with a top hat. And he's like, oh, look at this independent kid. And then he kind of sees what he's doing and how he's pickpocketing people. And maybe he's interested in that. But it, it is it yeah, is me like, yeah, I want to steal from people. <laughs> yeah, there's no hesitation <laughs> or anything. Crime. <laughs> yeah, like, what the hell? This dude doesn't care. Consider yourself as a great number when, when uh, right the Artful Dodger sings that for him. Exactly. And in fact, I, in terms of visuals, I think consider yourself as, you know, Artful Dodger is played by Jack Wilde. He's trying to introduce Oliver to the world that he lives in and also the world of London. And I think that's why this is actually my favorite number, like visually in terms of the film. It's probably not my favorite song. But Consider Yourself is a great ride throughout London. I think it has a lot of really great set pieces, a lot of huge like choreography numbers and huge dance scenes. Really impressive, honestly. I thought this was one of the most interesting in terms of the set design, the choreography, and just had a lot of movement and just kept going and going and going in a really fun, entertaining way. 
I wish the rest of the film had had more numbers that were like as big and grand as this. Um, but what did you, what else did you think about Consider Yourself, that musical number? Yeah, I, I like the scale of it and just kind of how it takes you around. I feel like it does drag a little bit. And some of that has to do with the choreography, which is really good in the in this movie. I got to say the choreography in this movie is some of the best that we have seen. And it's also takes so much emphasis away from the story and the music at times that it, it it's a weird balance that this movie doesn't like handle like too well. But I really like it. I think there's some really great shot choices. I love the shot towards the end of uh, of the number when Dodger and Oliver get like, I don't think it's thrown into a cart or they go into a cart and then the camera just sits on them with everybody that was in the number like coming up from behind them and they're being pushed. There's a lot of like movement. There's a lot of people in the background. A lot. Of, it's a very layered shot. And uh, that was really cool. I thought like some of the design and shot choices and the way the camera moves within the world was was really good and like that's like the technical stuff that i really enjoy you talk about the set design the set design is pretty fantastic um and it it feels absolutely lived in it feels absolutely real and authentic so it's it, it's like this weird balance because there are some like really great parts of this movie but then we joke and laugh about how the plot like just doesn't exist <laughs> and like i never like consider yourself as great but it kind of just fills up like five six minutes of screen time and leads to nothing really to forward the plot or forward characters just like oh yeah consider yourself part of this community we're just going to meet the this homeless guy that i live with <laughs> fagan he, he's cool dirty <laughs> he's always but, but he, dirty gonna, he's dirty but we're, we're gonna go i'm gonna i'm gonna take you to him where all of me and, and 20 other boys live <laughs> London's a rainy town. Like, don't they go outside when it rains to like get a wash or something? Well, it. it (laughs) (laughs) And all that money, like he can't buy a shower or something. Bad. John, from now on, every time it rains, I want you just to go. That's your shower. The only time you can shower is when it rains. Take a loofah and go out into the rain. John, where are you going? <laughs> I'm going out to shower. I got right 10 back. minutes of rain. Got to make it count. Oh, no, no. Yeah, it just stops. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, like all the shampoo still in your hair. <laughs> oh, my God. What are we God. talking about? This movie is so ridiculous. <laughs> and what? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so... I don't even know. Like, so consider yourself happens. Okay, this is actually because you asked me before, like, oh, which part of the movie is like your favorite? The first half, the second half. I'm gonna go the middle is my favorite. So it's a little bit of both, cutting out some things. So like, consider yourself leads right into pick a pocket or two, which that's a really great number. Like that, that was fun. That was fun to see Oliver, like to see Oliver and Fagin interact, but then to get this number that Fagin. It's teaching him how to pickpocket and all the boys are involved and there's a, again like a lot of crazy choreography and ways they're able to tell the story with how they use the set and the costumes it's really well designed um so that's a number i really like and then it leads into um well there's a little bit of, of time in between but then the you know i do anything for you number that they all sing to nancy which is so good and i i love the 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 melody and the the, the theme and the rhyming to it it's so it's so good um and that has some crazy like these like dutch angle shots that like it's as if like the it, the camera's on a crane and it gets like tilted to the side and it's like really 
cool and but not expecting that from a movie from this year and even from a musical so like this like that's the part of me i really enjoy is like this middle section where you feel like oh like oliver's become a pickpocketer and, and like i can see like where the story's going now for it just to be totally slapped away <laughs> i really love have to pick a pocket or two i think it's it's just a wonderful song it just just shows how cheeky fagin is and he's just such a little bastard who can't you know not steal he's just so ingrained in that life that he like gets pleasure out of just stealing not even getting pleasure out of the money and the profits but like he literally loves just the process of stealing and almost getting caught and getting away with it and everything like that he's such a creepy little guy but just can't look away and yeah I mean what a great musical number to follow as well I think you had some good points earlier on where the pacing is a little odd like I think a lot of the times in this film characters will meet they'll have like a page or two of dialogue and then all of a sudden it's immediately we're in a song like keep on moving and it's like so fast paced that you're like whoa please slow down like have a little bit longer of a conversation I want to get you to know you more before you start dancing and singing but in terms of liking the first half middle or you know the second act or the second part two of the film because it's broken in half with an intermission I much preferred the the opening first part of the film. I think with Food, Glorious Food, the introduction to Oliver and this world that he's in and transferring in, into living with these other group of people that are abusive to him and then going into London and the beautiful like opening shots of London and obviously consider yourself. I just like a lot of these songs and these numbers more than the, the final song numbers. And like I kind of said earlier on is that there's just a lot more agency when it comes to Oliver. He just wants to go out. He wants to see the world. He wants to have a real family that looks out for him and cares for him. And he has agency. And once he finds that, which is close to uh, the middle of the film with Fagin and all the little boys, he kind of loses his agency. He just kind of becomes a pawn and bounces around and moves around from that point. So, And then fading into the end of the first act is where we get, trying to think exactly, we get Oliver who then gets taken to the rich, wealthy family member's house, I believe. Or is this trying to think yeah so that's yeah yeah that's like the end of the first act being in the second act where oliver you know the, the mr brownlow is like oh well if you didn't do the crime i'll take you in you know street urchin kid and then you know for free i don't even have to pay for this shit it's great <laughs> and then uh then he gets taken in and that's where like i lose so much interest in the movie because i didn't like the roses song um oh man what's it called Anyway, I didn't like how the second act starts, and it's so long. It it almost like stops at one point to like continue a scene with Oliver, and then it just picks right back up out of nowhere. Why and it's is just, it just such so a long? <laughs> like why? I don't know. Why it doesn't really need to be. Who like, will this buy? Two and a half hours. Yeah, who will buy? Yeah, yeah, like don't need like that's like seven minutes almost. Yeah, it's literally and, like a, we don't. It's the longest song, and it's not even about our main characters. Like that is nothing. That's that not, is so weird. Like it's such a bizarre choice to, to like center and focus so much on that song. You're totally right. Yeah, it's super bizarre, and um, it, it just loses so much steam. And like the second half of the movie, it pretty much like you have that, and then Oliver gets taken back, and then there's not many like musical numbers after that. There's a song that Nancy sings, um, in the second half. Which one is it? It's um papa. It's, not, it's a fine line. Yeah, she does um papa, and then 
there's another song that she sings. Oh, as long as you uh, need always, me about Sykes yeah, and as, their as relationship. Need, yeah. Yeah, and it's so like bizarre because like here's this one like female character who she's actually like you know uh, Shani Wallace does a really good job with her and yeah I think there's a lot of like interesting things you can do but her fatal flaws are she's in love with the villain of the story. <laughs> Like, girl, you need help. Red God, flags. I know, right? Like he, he, I, He's literally an adult version of the Artful Dodger. <laughs> no, what? That's, literally. That's putting the Artful Dodger down. You kidding me? But but they make that comparison. They say that in the beginning of the movie. That, like I think Fagan says, like, oh, here's the Artful Dodger, a young version of Bill Sykes. It, it is so on the nose. And, and that is a point of the movie where I'm like, that could have been explored so much more. Like Bill Sykes' relationship with Fagan... We get a couple of those scenes where you can kind of see that Fagin still can kind of pull his magic. You know, he can still kind of wave his wand and knows how to, you know, control Bill Sykes in a way. But you could also see that Fagin is definitely scared of Bill Sykes. And he knows that, like, this is a man who literally could be, like, tipped over onto really criminal side if he gets pushed too far. So back to Nancy and Shani Wallace's performance. I mean, she was wonderful in this movie. I think she, not only does she sing her songs amazingly well, it's only two songs and her character is not really well explored. And it's just kind of hard to see a woman be abused and then just like excuse her abuser by singing a song about how much she loves me. And that's why he treats me the way it's just like insanely abusive behavior. And it's like hard to even, see a character justify this and especially justify it in a lovely romantic song it's kind of disturbing uh, not even kind yeah. of it's just very much disturbing that it's just so nonchalant the way she kind of sings about this and then i mean i'll flash forward to, to since we're speaking about nancy i mean the disregard and the disrespect to her character by killing her like that and killing her off screen oh as well yeah and then never even mentioning her again like completely forgot Fagin's like oh you shouldn't have done that and that's it that's it they just forget about Nancy not even like a funeral not even Oliver being like oh I just wish Nancy was here to see it you know nothing just a fuck Nancy Nancy didn't exist in this movie by the end of the movie done not important which is does nothing. It's like then why even include her in this movie just like cut her out why even include so many of the characters like why (laughs) include Bill Sykes what like, because he has to be the real know. villain, I think, is why, which makes sense. But why do you need someone like Nancy, who's like the will they, won't they, with the villain, who, who is helping the villain, but also trying to stop the villain? Like, it just makes things muddier and confusing, and I just don't see why it adds to the story, really. And maybe yeah. it does on it, Broadway more, you know? I mean, it, it would have been interesting if, like, Nancy was Oliver's mom. Or if, like, there is, like, that kind of moment with Oliver where he's like, oh, I really like you. I'm like, you'd be a great, like, mom for me to have type of thing. Yeah. But this movie doesn't do that because they just, like, completely forget about Oliver in the middle of it. (laughs) And that has to be on, like, that has to be on Carol Reed, the director, who, like, I don't know. It's it's such a bothersome part to me. And, like, that's kind of the overall thing about this movie is, like, it has some interesting parts. Some of the acting is actually really good, I think. Fagan, Ron Moody plays him. I think Nancy's a good job. I think Artful Dodger's really good. Even Bill Sykes is played by Oliver Reed, who is the nephew of Carol Reed, the director. But everywhere it says there's no nepotism involved in him being involved. <laughs> and I kind of believe that. Um, and 
and I just want to go all Oliver Reed. Little, st- I'll go out there in a second. But anyways, uh, it's just kind of like all these great characters and and moments that are part of the movie that add up to only like a handful of what the movie actually gives you. And then that like small handful isn't enough to like save the movie overall. This movie needs so much work, and and the plot is the main emphasis of it. And it would actually make it's a really good movie. Like I can kind of make sense in my head of like, oh, that's why this movie would have been so popular and well received and win at the time. But watching it now, it's so like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, who thought <laughs> this was good? Who who approved this cut of the movie? <laughs> I think one song that we haven't really talked about and I think is a really great song in the film by Ron Moody and as Fagan is reviewing the situation where we have, yes, yes, what a great song. such like a little creepy. It just kind of reminds me of like a Disney villain song, you know, like they're just sneaking around, but it's such an interesting song because we have this character. And again, I think we both agree he's the most interesting character because he's conflicted. He's a character who's who knows what he's doing is wrong, but he knows he has this kind of like love and addiction for stealing. And he's also knows that things are crumbling down. He knows that like the end of this world that he's kind of built up, these group of thieves, he knows that like it's coming to an end because of Sykes and because of Oliver. And maybe Oliver is the reason why everything's going to go down and kind of crash and burn. And so this reviewing the situation song is wonderful because he's kind of like talking about like, could he live, live a real life? Like, who would his boss be? Like, how would he live as a normal man? Not some like creepy man <laughs> in a little. <laughs> he's just cons- he's like the first thing he thinks about is getting a wife, and oh, I gotta read this. So I'm reviewing the situation. Can a fellow be a villain all his life? All the trials and tribulation better settle down and get myself a wife. So he's walking out the door, thinking like, ah, oh, I'm gonna do this, and then he's like, and a wife would cook and sew for me, and come for me, and go for me, and go for me, and nag at me. The finger she will wag at me. The money she will take from me. The misery she'll make from me. I think I'd better think it out again. <laughs> and the way he like rap, like that's how he like wraps it, but says it so quickly. And he's just like, I got to think about this again. And then the constant back and forth. It's so, the staging is so good. And then just the way that Ron Moody does this, he's like so maniacal and playful about it. It's a really great number. And you mentioned before we started recording, we're talking the beginning. Uh, we mentioned Fiddler on the Roof. And you're like, oh, you know, how can you did? I know you haven't seen Fiddle on the Roof, but you were like, oh, how can this be better than another movie we were talking about? And I was like, it's really good. And thinking about it, like some of the mannerisms that Ron Moody has as this, you can see it kind of in Fiddler on the Roof. And some it's it. And I don't. God, I don't want it to be a Jewish thing. It's not a Jewish thing. I swear. <laughs> can we talk about that since we're talking about Fagin? I want. Well, we talked a little bit about the beginning about. You know, David Lean's 1948 film and how it's so different. But I know when we talk about Ron Moody, the way he's kind of described it, he tried to tone down this performance. And while he is a Jewish man playing this character and there was confliction whether he the way he performed it on stage seemed like it was a lot more tongue in cheek. It was way more on the nose in terms of not not only his actual prosthetics of his nose and his makeup, but his dialogue and his voice was a lot more like Yiddish, I guess you would say, and a lot more like in your face. And I think when they were adapting the film, they knew they had to like kind of tone it down for an on-screen performance. And toning it down kind of like held it back a little bit. But I still think Fagin is an out-there character, makes a lot of crazy, wacky faces. And I think it works really well. But like as a Jewish man yourself, is there room to still criticize a performance like this? Is there 
racism in this character not even just ron moody's performance or this this character that he plays in oliver but in oliver twist as a story like is fagin a a kind of anti-semitic character i i think it's a stretch i when i first read it i was like this is a bit of a stretch and i don't because then that's just buying into the fact that like okay anyone who handles money in a movie like are you saying they inherently are jewish like then that would be the problem if you're admitting that that this is anti-semitic and it, I don't know. I, I, I think it's a very like if you want to read into that, like not saying you specifically, but if somebody wants to read into it as like, oh, this is anti-Semitic, then you can have that interpretation. But I really don't think that that was at all what is going on. And it's kind of unfortunate that it would have that kind of connotation with it because it is such a really, it's a really great performance. Like, I don't know. I, I don't know. I think that kind of takes it away so much from it. If you're just like, well, this is anti-Semitic, and it's it's really not. It just, yeah, he has a big nose, but not every Jewish person has a big nose. Not every you know, not every non-Jewish person has a small nose. It's it's very, it's weird to me that 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 would be a controversy that people would jump to that conclusion. Yeah, I feel like it's almost like bringing racist biases and like cliches that people think of. And then applying it to an old character who's just happens to be played by a Jewish man. So, and it's interesting hearing like Ron Moody's own kind of conversation that he's had with himself about the character and and how to adjust it. But I think we both agree Ron Moody is one of the best parts of Oliver. But I think we hit on a lot of the film, but I don't think we really hit on the end in particular, other than Nancy who gets killed by Bill Sykes, of course, and. Then we go on the, the, you know, the crazy chase after Bill Sykes and Bullseye, his dog, who's the really unspoken hero of this film, leads the group of <laughs> a townsmen, I guess. Like the entire town is after Bill Sykes. I guess they hear word of this very quickly and they go and they chase after him. And unfortunately or fortunately for Oliver, he is killed and shot. I don't even know how to describe it. Like what kind of construction gurney thing that they were climbing on at the end but it was insanely dark and and not graphic in terms of seeing blood and a lot of like violence but just the way they filmed it and having Bill Sykes just get shot down and he's still attached to the rope and he's just hanging there and Reed just decided to keep that scene like dead quiet as you just like see his body swinging and for me that it's dark and it's interesting but I have a problem with the way this film balances tone it just doesn't really make sense especially with a character like Fagin and we jump from this crazy wacky goofy guy who's making jokes and then we're like getting as serious as like watching this guy get gunned down and just like swinging there lifeless while like this 10 year old boy is watching this happen like it's just totally all over the place for me but what did you think about the end and the death of Bill Sykes I you know I think it goes on for far too long and it's almost like no one else can stop. Like we, you aren't able to trap down Bill like quicker. Almost, <laughs> I don't know. It's a very, it, it it's so highly dramatic that it's goofy. And so then, yeah, like when he does die at the end of the chase, it's so just like, oh, yay, you did it! <laughs> like so good. Like you you, you traumatized Oliver. Great. <laughs> Another thing Oliver is gonna cry about. But I I, I gotta say. Bill Sykes, Oliver Reed, who plays him, actually pretty good, P- pretty good role. You know, for those who don't know, 
Oliver Reed, you can see him in the movie Tommy. He plays Tommy's stepfather in that movie. And he was um, Keith Moon's drinking buddy during that time. So just to give you some insight there. And his final film role, which I don't know if you know this, he was actually in Gladiator. I know you're a big Gladiator guy. He played Antonius Proximo in that, and he died like during production. And uh, it's a kind of sad, but he does he'll reappear in our Oscar viewing uh, adventure. But yeah, just this movie ends so just like oh he's dead, great, and then there's literally <laughs> like a minute left of the movie, and that's it. Well, yeah, it's interesting the way they handle the last little bit of the film, which we have. You know, Fagin meeting up again with Dodger and <laughs> Fagin's kind of singing again. He's reviewing the situation and he's kind of basically decided, like, I'm going to be a straight man again. Like, I'm going to go back on the straight and narrow. I'm not going to be a thief. And then who does he run into? Dodger, of course, who stole a lined purse. It's got to be lined. It's of value. It's worth a lot. <laughs> right. And he he knows that, like, with him and Dodger together, like, they'll continue to be there sneaky little selves and continue to be thieves and be happy the rest of their days as they walk off into the sun but for me like that's so great and dandy but you're calling this movie oliver with an exclamation point and you give oliver you give me a five minute scene with fagin and this other random boy and you give me like one minute of oliver to end the movie and all of the the last scene is just like a 10 second scene of Oliver reuniting with this family that he really doesn't know at all and it they just fades to black while, as he hugs like his new mother i guess but it's like how do you end the film without answering such insane questions like what happens to all the little kids like where did all those little kids <laughs> Wait, go? <laughs> like we're not gonna talk about that. Like there oh, was like forty of them. Their, like their, where are they living? Male, their male role model, you know, runs off. It's yeah. Like what is Dodger doing? He's like I hate I'm, all of my brothers that I have like known for like my whole life. Like forget about them. I'm just gonna go off with Fagin, the guy who is the reason most of this exploded in our face. See, this is why we need the OCU, the Oliver Cinematic Universe, where I get a prequel <laughs> Dodger movie, a sequel to Oliver. I, I, you know, everybody comes in, I get a Nancy prequel. I get Bill Sykes. He comes back. <laughs> he didn't die. He comes back. I'm just... Then a Hugh Griffith standalone movie where he's just a drunk magistrate the entire time going, where's Tom's pussy? <laughs> Wouldn't it have been better, though? Like, realistically, I don't know the... As I've established, I do not know the Oliver Twist story very well at all. But wouldn't a much more interesting story be Oliver finishing the film? I don't know, helping all of these little boys, all of the little boys that are stuck in an awful situation who are now homeless. Like they used to have a little rooftop shack. Now they're homeless. Where the hell are they living? Like what if the story ends with like him and his new rich family like opening an orphanage or something like that like i don't know at least something that's a little more happy like there's yes oliver like makes it out and he has has a new family he's finally loved he's seen by everyone but what about like the 25 all the little boys that are in this movie we just are really gonna forget forget about them and throw them to the side there's just gonna be more we bill are. sykes and, Fa- and fagans out there like nope nope <laughs> we're done <laughs> that doesn't matter <laughs> Oh my Home god. Home destroyed. Doesn't matter. We st- we stopped Bill Sykes. Man. I wonder if there's more yeah. and that they just like had to cut it down to two uh, two and a half hours. Like 
it just feels like something is missing from the the end there. I think that's literally <laughs> just the end. <laughs> the only thing else I really Bizarre. have to say about Oliver is that I first watched this film on HBO Max and it looked terrible. I got to be honest. It, it looked like a TV movie. It looked very muddy and low saturated. And it's hard to tell because we're just seeing whatever restoration that we can get a copy of. It's hard to tell like what the original look of the film was supposed to be. And it's funny, and I literally forgot that I even own this because I own the Columbia Classics Collection 2 on 4K, which is like a collection of, I think, five or six films. I think it's six films, all from Columbia Pictures, obviously. And there's Oliver, which is the 4K restoration. It just came out, I think, last year. So it is a brand new restoration, I think, off of an original print of the film. And I watched it on my second viewing on that 4K disc. And wow, this movie is so, so much better looking than the version on HBO Max. And I was just so shocked by this. And it really just made me think of just the conversation of physical versus online digital media versus streaming platforms and just how drastically different it can be. You know, you can have someone who says, you know, I want to go back. I want to watch an old musical. Like maybe they love La La Land and they're like, I should go back and watch all of these great musicals that I haven't seen. So they go out and they're like, oh, Oliver, that's a musical I haven't seen from 1968. I'm going to go watch it on HBO Max because that's available to me. That's an easy thing for me to do. And then they get five minutes in. They're like, this movie looks terrible, looks so ugly. And it just does not look like at all like a well-made film, just purely by the visuals. And that would just be a person completely putting that movie aside and saying, I'm not going to watch that. But if they were to rent it, say on like Amazon Prime or Apple TV, they would be renting or buying the 4K version that is the new restoration of the film. And then if you're buying the old Blu-ray version, because there is no physical way to buy this 4K version of Oliver, unless you're buying the $100 Columbia Classics collection because they don't sell these separately. So now we're dealing on top of that with how complicated physical media is, especially when you bundle it together. So really what I'm saying is that there's just too many iterations of films sometimes. And with older films like this, you know, we're still like 60, about 60 years, like past where we are in time now. But it's just a messy situation, especially with streaming services and how they can be all over the place and how they can have different versions of the film. But it's just fascinating. And I think a lot of people could watch this movie and really just, you know, look at it as looking very cheap and and not very professional, but when you see that new 4K render and the, the iteration of it with the HDR added and how much dark and, and kind of black is in this film, it adds so much to see this on 4K and see it with HDR. And I was just really blown away by the visuals. And that's that's my rant on the weird 4K disc that is inside the Columbia Classics collection number two. Yeah, uh, I, I don't know. I, I think that it's such a... We've talked about it before with um, with 4K quality and, and and how things are streamed because I feel at times that the movie should speak for itself rather than the quality of how you're watching it because if a, movie, if a story is so good, it shouldn't matter the medium that it's told on. It should just be – it should stand out on its own. And so that's how my approach to it, but I do see the whole – and I haven't seen the 4K th- you know edition you know like you have, but – to me, like I can understand that watching a 4K, something that's HD, you know, more rendered out, that 
this movie would probably look a little bit better. Wouldn't look as gray. Wouldn't look as just you know, you know, monotone in certain parts. So, I I can totally respect that. Yeah, I think what happens is that the film was preserved back in 1998. So my guess is that you know the film was preserved probably back uh, in like 720 on like a DVD. And then they probably made Blu-rays. Uh, it looks like in 2013 they made Blu-rays based off of that film preservation. So I think with the Columbia Classics, they came back. They probably rescanned it now with modern technology in 4K. And you see a huge difference. And I totally understand that. I think I stand by you. And I think you're more likely to watch a film on your phone and your iPad than I would. Not, not to say that I refuse to do that. I certainly do and have done that before. But I think that is a testament to that thought of yours that you if it's a good film it's a good film like if inception is amazing in theaters then it should be still pretty damn good on my phone right like if it's a great story it should it still should be pretty great so i i agree with that sentiment i think it can get a little messy with certain edge cases and i think it's something that we don't see very often other than with restoring older films but yeah it's a it's a nice thought experience and i'm curious what uh, our audience has to say about just film restorations and it's funny, like, to see a film, and I think of TV a lot. Like, you watch a film on TV, and you're like, whoa. And you finally watch the real version, and you're like, this is way different. And not, it's not even just the cursing, just changing scenes, taking out scenes sometimes. That's kind of like the modern-day version that we kind of grew up on. But anyway, I'm getting so off-topic and rambling. Is there anything <laughs> else that you want to talk about, Oliver? Just shut up and drink your gin, John. Or should I say, please, sir, may I have some more? Listen, this here is the place where they're giving out all them golden Oscars tonight. What do you think's the chance of us winning one? I don't rightly know, my dear, but if they don't give us one, we'll have to pinch it, won't we? <laughs> From the door of the Chandler Pavilion at the Music Center in Los Angeles, the 41st Academy Awards. The 41st Academy Awards were held on April 4th, 1969 at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in Los Angeles, California, and the event was hosted once again by... Nope, not Bob Hope. In fact, there were no hosts this year, and this live broadcast was actually seen across 37 nations, and it was the first time the awards had been televised worldwide. These were also the first Oscars to be staged in the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in Los Angeles, and this was the first time since the 11th Academy Awards there was no host. So, Ben, right off the top, I think that is kind of familiar to us with the pandemic era and with the Oscars that took place during the pandemic where we didn't really have our kind of leading hosts and they kind of stuck with that and they kind of changed it. So, one, what a weird little kind of recent flashback to what we've experienced uh, now and what we experienced recently in Oscar history. So what do you think about all of these new changes? we got worldwide Oscars. we got no hosts. It's just a kind of a collection of people that present awards. And, you know, we're in a new location. It's kind of a big deal. We're seeing a lot of different changes with the Oscars this year. Yeah, so I, I was saying to you that I think this Oscars is really interesting because it's uh, it feels like a new change. It feels like a new era 
and Oscars and what gets awarded and what doesn't. And one of the biggest changes I didn't notice from watching the old clips was I enjoyed the sometimes corny, sometimes way too staged and done up moments between these actors as they're trying to get through a telecast because doing television is different than doing film or at least live tv is different than doing film and i just thought it i like i really enjoyed it i really enjoyed the pacing i really enjoyed the comedy and and how it all flowed it felt like how the oscars should be you know i think they try to do that still but the problem is that you have all these you have all these marketing executives who are like oh do this have this fad and and do this and and say this and you know try and get this trend from tick TikTok or Twitter on hearing your lingo and, and your approach to the jokes or let's PC it all and so just like let's just have fun with it like that like don't have to be mean or, or do anything stupid with it but I just love it when everyone's like here are the movies here's something that we can all enjoy and show and celebrate and that's what the Oscars are to me is celebrating film and a medium of art that I, I truly love and respect so I really liked how they did this Oscar this year and also the beginning, it kind of gives you a, like a nudge, like a wink wink to what people really loved is they had Fagan and the Artful Dodger just like come out of a bush in front of uh, the pavilion where the, the Oscars are being held. And that doesn't tell you that like what the Oscars and the voters and what everyone in Hollywood was thinking shows you how well loved and received Oliver was for them to put it at the beginning of the telecast. No other movies, no other characters. Fagan and Dodger at the beginning of the entire telecast. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think it's funny we're even seeing changing in clothes. I mean, how bright are some of the outfits at this Oscars? They're so flamboyant and so 60s. It just reminds me of like my grandmother, honestly. And, you know, you're getting a lot of like the turquoises, the bright yellow, the the bright like light blue, you know, a bunch of really like bright late 60s colors that you're seeing pop out. And you're right. You're, it really does feel like a more modern take on on what we're kind of used to nowadays, where we have a, a very much an honoring the way we've used to. Um, and now without a host where you, we would normally see Bob Hope there to kind of crack some jokes about each of the films, it becomes even more meta in a way where we have actual actors and actresses kind of commenting on films performances uh stereotypes in hollywood you know a bunch of things that are very common in what we see today where every speech for the oscars comes up and you know i wouldn't say every but the majority of them always have like tongue-in-cheek jokes in them uh, and they're always presented by different actors actresses or people that are important to the industry but let's jump into the 41st academy awards by talking about some honorary awards Academy Honorary Awards that year were given to Ona White for her outstanding choreography achievement in Oliver and also to John Chambers for her outstanding makeup achievement for the Planet of the Apes. So I want to talk about this moment in particular because one, uh, they brought out a, a little monkey to give uh, John Chambers his award for that night. And for those who don't know, you may recognize or know who the character John Chambers is because he was portrayed by John Goodman in Argo. And they made kind of a whole Planet of the Apes thing there as well. So it's kind of cool to see Chambers honored in a Best Picture winner and shown and talk about in a very subtle way that I don't think many people actually got the referencing and got who he was at the time because the rest of the movie Argo was just fantastic. 
that's for us to talk about Argo when we get there. But Planet of the Apes, I love Planet of the Apes. It's, it's I the concept of it is so great. It's so like high, higher. Well, I guess pretty high if you think of it one way. But higher thinking of like how to present a movie and a story, something sci-fi, something you're not expecting. And it's it's such such great movies. I love the make of those movies. I love the technology that's come from the from the recent Planet of the Apes movies. So it's cool that's being honored. It's like I think this has to be one of the first makeup awards given out and achievements like recognitions. Um, you know, so it's it's truly fantastic. So I'm happy for John Chambers. I'm happy for Planet of the Apes. Wish it got more love, but these, this honorary award is pretty cool. And also. Again, for Oliver, Ona White, you know, for the choreography, like there's a recognition that that the choreography in the movie is really great, and it is one of the positives of the movie. It's really hard not to think about Nope seeing that little ape come out onto stage. Yeah, that's true too. <laughs> <laughs> the Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award went to Martha Ray for her volunteer efforts and services to the United States troops. Best Special Visual Effects went to 2001, A Space Odyssey, to Stanley Kubrick. Uh, This is Kubrick's first and only Academy Award win out of 13 total nominations. His films in total won nine Academy Awards, four for Spartacus, one for 2001, this one, and four for Barry Lyndon. I don't really know what there is to say about Stanley Kubrick that I can say very succinctly and quickly that isn't for a whole other podcast that isn't for just a whole other like days worth of discussion. Cause I love Stanley Kubrick. I'm a Kubrick fanatic. I think it's awesome that he would win for this movie, but it does stink that like he doesn't get recognition for any of his other movies as a director, best picture as a writer, uh, again in his life, but it kind of makes his films that much you know, more special and just, I, l- I love Kubrick. John, wh- what do you think about 2001, Stanley Kubrick? Um, I'm not going to open the can of worms. We're just going to slightly just look at it a little bit. Well, I think 2001, just purely based off its special effects, is just absolutely unreal. It's a movie that I think you can even watch now. You can even show kids, young TikTokers out there. You could show them just the zero-gravity space scene. And I know it's just so common to see so much like heavily CGI'd you know zero gravity motion floating pens it's like something we're so used to but in this film it does it so elegantly and in a time where there were barely any visual effects really you know you had some like some uh, projector screens in the background maybe some digital compositing here and there uh, which was always very intensive but nothing to this degree where you could really see and feel like you're in outer space and what an amazing film there's no i was gonna say there's no digital anything in this movie it's all in camera yeah it's fascinating What I was going to say about Stanley Kubrick is that I think it's more so of the kind of films that he makes. I think throughout his entire career, he almost hit on like almost every genre in a way. And I almost feel that like his earlier films, like pre Spartacus, they were kind of more in line for Oscar love than his later on career. Maybe Barry Lyndon being like a period piece, but I think... With Spartacus being sword and sandals, I think that goes kind of a little too far outside of Best Picture and the sci-fi 2001 kind of experimental ending that it has, I think a little too out there. I don't think we really have any sort of science fiction film coming close to Best Picture, you know, at this point. 
And then throughout his career after Space Odyssey now, we have films like Barry Lyndon, but he makes very controversial films in terms of the subject matter. I think very dark films, very twisted films like A Clockwork Orange that we'll see very soon. Like A Clockwork Orange is is an amazing film and it's one of the most interesting like character studies I think ever on film, but is that a best picture winner? I think to you as being one of your favorite films of all time, you would say yes, but to I'm like me holding myself back. <laughs> but to me, that is an extremely dark and disturbing film. And I don't think there's many films that even get close to being that dark and disturbing that are best picture winners. So I think Stanley Kubrick is on the fringe in terms of the stories he likes to tell, and I think that's why he's so remembered, not only as an amazing director and story visual storyteller, but also because he had an eye to really interesting and engaging stories, but they're not your normal, you know, stereotypical story. And I think, and and it really starts with a space odyssey with 2001. I think from here on, he gets the clout that he, he, he really deserved. And then he moves forward and makes whatever crazy project he really wants to make. So long rant, Kubrick is a legend. There's not much more else we can say about him. 2001. Yeah. D- well deserved. It, it's, it's pretty remarkable because you know after 2001, then he does a Clockwork Orange, then Barry Lyndon, then The Shining, Full Metal Jacket, then Eyes Wide Shut, and that's it. Like he doesn't, he makes five more movies after 2001: A Space Odyssey. Crazy. I, it, it's insane. So I, again, we're not going to get too de- in in deep about Stanley Kubrick, but if you haven't watched Stanley Kubrick movies yet, you should go out there and experience it. Best film editing went to Frank P. Keller for. Bullet. This is Keller's first Academy Award win out of four total nominations. His work on the car chase sequence in Bullet is what many credit as the reason for the win this year. And I think the iconic scene, I haven't seen it in particular, but I, I can picture the vehicle. I can see the exact scene of this like flying car as our main character is racing down, you know, having this epic chase scene. Ben, have you seen Bullet? Steve McQueen. I've bullet. seen the chase scene. I've seen the chase scene. Yeah, I've also seen the chase scene. It's like one of those, like when I was younger and like getting into film and watching, like just going to like early YouTube and typing in like best chase scene, you know, like just like best <laughs> action scenes, you know, and just like watching like 10, 15 clips of different things. That is one of them. Yeah. So we both should uh, get together and watch Bullet sometime. And moving on to best cinematography. That one went to Romeo and Juliet to Pasqualino's DeSantis. This is DeSantis' first and only Academy Award win and nomination. The film was also nominated for Best Director and Best Picture, which makes it the last Shakespearean film to date to be nominated in the Best Picture category. So we've lost a lot of, there's been a lot of time since this movie came out. The fact that Romeo and Juliet was just being made was a best picture nominee and we haven't had a, a Shakespeare movie since to be nominated for best picture is quite fascinating but did Oliver maybe deserve this it's a, it's a tricky one I mean I have actually seen this version of Romeo and Juliet and it is shot well it's not that really engaging on the same level that I think Oliver is though and I know you've seen Funny Girl so I'm curious to hear your argument between Funny Girl and Oliver and the cinematography there but <sighs> I was really kind of blown away by the cinematography after I watched the 4K version. I think the look of it and and getting to see more of that camera work in 4K was just pretty astonishing. I was kind of impressed by just how grand this film is and the scope and the use of some of the weird angles. Like you're talking about using Dutch angles in the middle of like a musical like that. I don't think we've seen that before. We certainly haven't seen it in Best Picture musicals that 
I can remember, like this kind of weird take and weird angles that we're not really used to. I was really impressed by Oliver, but Funny Girl, no, yeah. not not worthy. No, but a movie now I'm thinking about it should have been there and probably should have won was 2001: A Space Odyssey. It's, <laughs> it's so, insane. <laughs> it's insane. It's insane. I know I, I called you about this, but it's insane <laughs> that 2001 and Oliver are contemporaries. They're the same <laughs> same year, same Oscar ceremony. I mean, Once Upon a Time in the West nominated for best like oh, not it, being nominated <laughs> rosemary's baby not being nominated either like crazy but bizarre Biz- <laughs> but don't we don't even need to get into the to that just yet but bizarre i mean what even bizarre. is star one of the nominations here is star with an exclamation point never it, heard of that it doesn't even matter entirely Let, let's look at look at like today's <laughs> the, this year's cinematography awards the 95th academy awards like that is Stacked. bizarre from, from <laughs> From where we thought it would be. It is weird, yeah. The movies that are not nominated are stacked. Make that category <laughs> stacked. Moving on to Best Art Direction. Oliver. Art Direction by John Box and Terrence Marsh. Set Decoration by Vernon Dixon and Ken Muggleston. This is Box's third of four total Academy Awards. He previously won for Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Zhivago, and he would go on to win... For Nicholas and Alexandra in 1971. So I think I led pretty early off in the podcast by saying Oliver's really biggest attribute and really my favorite aspect of the film overall was the art direction. I thought the, you know, even just the opening shot of introducing Oliver to London, the grand, beautiful score that kind of carries us into it, but it's a beautiful shot of this city. You know, and I lived in London for like almost four months. And obviously this was like 2015 London, very different than 1830s London. But there was like a lot that I still kind of felt, you know, this like charming city that has had so much history kind of built in throughout it. The cobblestone streets, the busy side streets with vendors and all these sorts like random people living their lives. And it did. It it felt like an expansion from an American in Paris, like 16 years ago, 17 years ago, and really opening it up. I remember we talked about an American in Paris and how kind of like, like empty a lot of it was like, it was just a kind of a back lot that they didn't really fill too much with a lot of people. So it felt a little shallow, but for this, it really does feel lived in. It's grand. It's beautiful. Ben, what else is there to say really about Oliver's great art direction? No, I don't think there's really much more. Just that I appreciate the detail and how in depth it really gets. So, great job by the team uh, behind the art direction. Well deserved win. Moving on to best costume design, that one went to Romeo and Juliet to Danilo Donati. This is Donati's first of two career Oscars, and they would go on to win for Casanova in 1976 in the best costume design category. Best foreign language film went to War and Peace from the USSR. At a cost of 8.29 million rubles, equal to about $9.21 million in 1967's USD, it was the most expensive film made in the Soviet Union. War and Peace was the first Soviet picture to win the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film and was the longest film ever to receive an Academy Award at 431 minutes until OJ Made in America won the Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature in 2017. 
The Oscar statue was confiscated by the Soviet's authorities upon return, presumably along with the Golden Globe statue. I've always wanted to see War and Peace. I've seen like, you know, a YouTube mashup of like great international films and like this one came up and I was like, wow, that looked pretty insane. And I knew like how long it was, but it well, it's like four different I think it's like a four-part movie. Like they released it in four different installments. So interesting. There's probably an easy way to watch it, but that's a lot of movie to watch. <laughs> that is a lot. I'm like trying to do the math in my head of how many hours that even is, but I'm just gonna stop. <laughs> well, it's like two hundred, like eight and a half hours, well, right? Uh, well, two hundred minutes is three hours, so it's six, six and, and a half, half hours. There you go. Yeah. This is yeah. Worthy Math with Ben and John. Back to your regular schedule programming. <laughs> <laughs> Best sound went to Oliver to Shepperton Studios Sound Department. I mean, what is there to say about Best Sound? I mean, it, they do a great job at uh, the musical numbers. You know, it, it is... They build a great environment in terms of, like, establishing London, establishing the different locations that he goes to. But sound is always just a hard topic to even kind of, like, break down and dissect. And, you know, can you argue that funny girl sound is better, you know? Especially at this point in, like, Hollywood. It's so, it's, it's like, we've, what, over 40 years now of sound film. And it's still not, like, the sound that we know today. I, I, there's a whole like revolution to come with sound in movies so like yeah to judge this is so it's so hard moving on to best song original for a motion picture went to the windmills of your mind from the thomas crown affair music by michelle legrand lyrics by alan and Marilyn bergman this is legrand's first of three academy award wins both Alan and Marilyn Bergman's first Oscar of two career wins. So, there's no better time to listen to The Windmills of Your Mind. Keys that jingle in your pocket, words that jangle in your head. Why did summer go so quickly? Was it something that you said? Lovers walk along the shore and leave their footprints in the sand. Was the sound of distant drumming just the fingers of your hand? Pictures hanging in a hallway. Come on, Chitty gonna, Chitty Bang Bang uh, should be the I, I literally, Is that chitty, what you were about to say? Chitty Chitty Bang Bang! What? What? Oh my, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, I love you. What? It, what? Oh my God, it's not even like just that song. It's every song from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And also, as a musical, how is that not better than fucking Oliver? <laughs> oh man. The, oh, the, 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 the
in Chi Chi Bang Bang still haunts me. That door is closed <laughs> where I am recording right now, and I swear to God, that child catcher is probably right there to get you me. You got that big net, and their trucks yeah. parked downstairs waiting for you. Oh, my God. It's <laughs> horrifying. And, and but what I, a great movie. I think without a doubt, too, it's a movie that has definitely stayed and, and has stood test of time more than Oliver. I would definitely say that. And even... Even so much so that we have Belfast of last year showing like long, full moments of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Like oh, wait. Sucking the dick out of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. That's yeah, it Belfast was Chitty Chitty did. Bang Bang, right? Like, I was like, yeah. am I tripping? Was it Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy that it isn't, you know, as well regarded here now in 1968 during the Academy Awards. And I wonder if it was just way too crazy. Talk about a lot of, a lot of like wild special effects, like. Woo. Stupid. Insane it's special effects in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Best score of a musical picture original adaptation went to Oliver to Johnny Green. This is Green's fifth and final Academy Award. He won four times in the musical score category, winning for Easter Parade, An American in Paris, West Side Story, and Oliver. And he won for Best Short Subject, One Reel, for Overture to the Merry Wives of Windsor from 1953. So, Ben... We talked a lot about the music heavily, but since I haven't seen Funny Girl, I wanted to not only mention that I think, again, Funny Girl over Oliver is is definitely a a more well-regarded film at this point. I think it's still more talked about, and I think, I mean, we even just saw a a recent adaptation on Broadway again with, I'm forgetting her name, Jonah Hill's sister, but... (laughs) Yeah, I saw that last year with... uh, Beanie Feldstein. And, there you uh, go. The music, you. The, funny girl, the music of Funny Girl isn't that good. So Really? But yeah, it, it's really not. Well, why do it, you think it's I, like I, stood the test of time then and still so popular? Well, I think just like, you know, Barbara Streisand has like stood the test of time. Like that's what people really like that movie. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't think it's the music. I, at least not, that's not what, it, what the movie does for me. <laughs> I mean, it's also Omar Sharif in the movie, so there's a lot yeah, of... Yeah, yeah, relax. Put it away. <laughs> Moving on to best original score for a motion picture, not a musical, went to John Barry for The Lion in Winter. This is Barry's third of five career Oscars, as he previously won best original score and best original song for Born Free in 1966. Best short subject cartoons goes to Winnie the Pooh and the Blustery Day to Walt Disney, which was a posthumous award. Coming to theaters this weekend, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. <laughs> <laughs> literally, it is literally coming out this weekend. Best live action short subject went to the Guggenheim Productions for Robert Kennedy Remembered. Best documentary short subject went to Why Man Creates to Saul Bass. Best documentary feature went to Bill McGaw for Journey into Self. Also notable this year was the only instance to date of the Academy revoking an Oscar after the ceremony. Young Americans from Robert Cohn and Alex Gassoff won the award for Best Documentary Feature Film, but on May 7, 1969, but it was discovered that it had premiered in October 1967, thus making it ineligible. Journey into Self, the first runner-up, was then awarded the Oscar the following day. So what a weird occurrence, something that I cannot remember ever happening. I cannot think it's... I can't think no. of a moment where it's ever happened, really, besides this. So, what a what an odd thing to happen. Should it have? Should it have, should it have happened with Will Smith? No. 
Should... <laughs> uh, that's such a hard thing because it's like so not related <laughs> to like the rules, well, right? He so. would have been an, yeah ineligible. But what is interesting about this is that there was a runner up. They know who the runner-ups are. They <laughs> have course. the stats. Of course. I need to know the stats. I need to know, John. It's funny that you say that week. because I just heard uh, on like a YouTube kind of pundit, you know, YouTube page, they were talking about that and they were asked, like, they should show every single like runner-up and show the statistics. Yeah. But then doesn't that become kind of a game of like poo-pooing those who lost and then you get to see like how much you lost by and how sad that is that you like, didn't get voted. So is it like putting yeah. down the other nominees? Isn't it just like an honor to be nominated? That's fair. But for me, I, I would love stats there's guy. a little room in the Academy Museum that's like, and here are all the stats from all the years and I can just sit there and read it all and know it all. I want to know. It would be cool. I mean, because we, we will see, spoiler alert, a tie this year. And I think instances like that where we have a reference to something that was so close, you know, like the last tie that happened, it was because the, they were off by three votes or the to two nominees were... Votes, yeah. Yeah, thank you. It's, so it's interesting to see like how much it's changed and if we could actually see a full list of like how close some of the winners were throughout history, that would be really fascinating. Like you don't have to go into the exact, you know, numbers for every single person. But like you said, if there's a room that shows like 10 of the closest calls or like almost winners. And again, that does sound like derogatory against the losers, but it is, I understand where you're coming from. You're a stats man. You want to know all the stats. You want to know all the details. I get it. I want to know. Moving on to best screenplay based on material from another medium. Went to The Lion in Winter to James Goldman based on his own play. This is Goldman's only Oscar winning nomination. The film is set around Christmas of 1183, which is uh, about political and personal turmoil among the royal family of Henry II of England, his wife Eleanor, their three sons, and their guests. This is a movie that I had on my list of like, okay, I got to watch The Lion in Winter to prepare for this Oscars. But there's a lot of movies I had to re-familiarize myself and watch because this is a good Oscar year. So I didn't get a chance to do The Lion in Winter. I honestly may do it after we're done recording, John, because I'm very fascinated to know about this movie and know more about it. But um, pointing out Oliver in this category, eh, didn't deserve it. Rosemary's Baby was in this category, deserved it. So... <laughs> just gonna <laughs> yep yeah moving on <laughs> moving on best story and screenplay written directly for the screen went to mel brooks for the producers this is brooks only academy award win out of three total nominations and actually mel brooks is an egot winner completing his egot with his tony award win for the 2001 production of the producers so first ben are you a big mel brooks fan and have you seen The Producers? I love The Producers so much, man. I love I love Mel Brooks, but I love The Producers. <laughs> Springtime for Hitler is amazing. <laughs> See, that is the only thing I know about The Producers is I've seen The Springtime oh, for Hitler. I've never seen all of The Producers, oh. no. And in fact, I didn't oh. even know Mel Brooks. This was like decades ago at this point. But when I first heard about The Producers, it was through the... 
the remake. I don't know if that is the 2001 production that they're referring to. No, no, no that's the, the Broadway that was, version. That's on yeah. stage, but that's the Broadway version. Which I think did have Nathan Lane and, and Matthew Broderick. And that's kind of how it got carried version. out to the feature film version. It's a movie remake. Yeah, yeah, then it got made again on the stage. Oh, my God. I, I know the premise of it. It's Hitler like genius. And that scene is hilarious. The whole production of Springtime for Hitler is amazing. It, but yeah, that's been on my the, list for like oh. ever. I'm like ashamed to even say that out loud, to be honest. There, there's, oh man, there, there's a, oh, so uh, you, you really haven't seen it? Oh no. man, that's where I start saying like Bialystok and Bloom. <laughs> Bialystok and Bloom. Oh my God, it's so good. <laughs> We're going to be the producers of a big Broadway flop. Oh <laughs> So good. And it was awesome to see a young Mel Brooks, you know, get the award and he was so happy won. So uh, it's a, it, it was so cool. I was so happy to see that. Uh, I didn't trust myself in case I won, so I wrote a couple of things here. I want to thank the Academy of Arts, Sciences, and Money for this wonderful <laughs> award. Uh, well, I'll just say what's in my heart. Ba-bump, 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 ba-bump. <laughs> But seriously, I'd like to thank Sidney Glazer, the producer of The Producers, for producing The Producers. <laughs> Josephy Levine and his wife, Rosalie, for distributing the film. <laughs> I'd also like to thank Zero Mostel. I'd also like to thank Gene Wilder. I'd also like to thank Gene Wilder. I'd also like to thank Jane Wilder. Thank you very much. Moving on to Best Supporting Actress went to Ruth Gordon for Rosemary's Baby as Minnie Castavet. This is Gordon's first and only Oscar win. She had been nominated a total of five times, twice for Best Supporting Actress and three times for Best Original Screenplay. She co-wrote A Double Life, Adam's Rib, and Pat and Mike with her husband, Garson Kanan. In accepting the award on stage, Gordon thanked the Academy by saying, I can't tell you how encouraging a thing like this is. At the time, she had been in the business for 50 years and was 72 years old. And she went on to say, and thank all of you who voted for me. And to everyone who didn't, please excuse me. And she walked off laughing, laughing, and everyone was applauding her. It One, the fact that like Rosemary's Baby, again, coming at the same time as Oliver, Getting the recognition is significant and cool, and it shows this change in, in this new way of thinking about Oscar movies and, like, what is an Oscar movie? Then to win for one of the acting roles. I could have understood if, like, the writing had won or maybe cinematography or kind of like a, a technical award, maybe. But the fact that, like, one of the actors won is incredible. And the fact that it's, that it's Ruth Gordon from that movie is so, like, yes, you highlighted, like, a true great part of the film she if you haven't seen rosemary's baby she is insane there there's something insane about her that is comforting at first and then you realize how insane she is and it takes on this insidious darkness that is makes your heart race the entire like every time she then comes on the screen when you kind of realize what's going on and uh, she's fantastic in it it's awesome to see you know that this woman in in hollywood who had a long career. I think she said in her speech that her first movie was 1915. So 60 years in Hollywood. you know, And, and the fact that it all culminates into this moment. She was a writer. Uh, you know, It's so great. Um, so I, I'm really happy 
with this win, that kind of what it stands for, who it goes to. It's it's really cool uh, to see. Um, John, you watched Rosemary's Baby, right? Not yet. <laughs> I thought you watched it. God. No, ah. no, still not yet. I wanted to before we got to this year, but ah. I, I missed it in October again. Sad. All right, you only will watch in October. <laughs> Silly man. Best Supporting Actor went to Jack Albertson for The Subject Was Roses as John Cleary. This is Albertson's only Academy Award win and nomination. Albertson was an incredibly prolific, talented, and frequently underappreciated actor, emerging from the vaudeville circuit and burlesque shows of New York in the 30s. He would later apologize to child actor and fellow nominee Jack Wilde for winning the award as Albertson expected Wilde to win for his role in Oliver as Artful Dodger. Albertson later appeared as Charlie Bucket's Grandpa Joe in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory in 1971 and in The Poseidon Adventure in 1972 where he played Manny Rosin, husband to Belle, played by Shelley Winters. We do have the nomination and the mention of Jack Wilde for Oliver, who I think does a great job as Jack Dawkins or Dodger in this case. And we also have Gene Wilder in his role as Leo Bloom from The Producers. So there are some some stacked, you know, other other supporting actors here that are mentioned. Gene Wilder being probably the most famous recognizable face. What did you think of Jack Wilde's performance as Dodger in Oliver, Ben? I thought it was... Really, like, I, when I was rewatching the movie, I was trying to figure out, like, well, why? Like, why did he get this? And I think it has to do with his two musical numbers, with Consider Yourself and I Do Anything. He really steals the show in those moments, and it's a kid. It, it's very subtle uh, performance. But So I think, like, that's why he was nominated. Did not deserve to win. <laughs> if he had won, I would have been shocked. <laughs> you know, if we're really comparing apples to oranges or kid actors to kid actors... If you compare Jack Wilde to Mark Lester as Oliver, I think Jack Wilde is just a much better performer. Uh, I think Mark Lester yeah. at the time, such an adorable little boy. He's like, looks exactly like Oliver from, you know, the old sketching and drawings from the early you know, iterations of the novel or ad- adaptations. And he looks the part and he's a cute, charming face, but I just don't think there's really that much. Uh, of a performer and that convincing of a performance. And I know it's hard to say about a, a child actor, but when you look at it side by side with Jack Wilde, I think not only is the artful Dodger actually a way more interesting character than Oliver is, he has a lot more agency. He makes decisions on his own. And in fact, he's the one at the end to convince Fagin to be like, to, to not evaluate his situation, like to tell him to not review the situation and to, continue to be a thief so i think overall he honestly adds more to the film not just as a performer but also his character as artful dodger moving on to best actress and as ingrid bergman exclaimed when she opened the best actress envelope it's a tie so we have a tie between katherine hepburn for the line in winter and barbara streisand in funny girl so let's start with Katherine Hepburn. This is Hepburn's third Academy Award out of 12 total nominations. She's won four times, yada, yada, yada. Uh, Hepburn became the second actress and third performer overall to win an acting Oscar two years in a row. She previously won for Guess Who's Coming to, Gin- Guess Who's Coming to Dinner the previous year. And she joined Louise Rayner, uh, who won for The Great Zigfield and The Good Earth. 
and Spencer Tracy, who won for Captain Courageous and then Boys Town. She also became the first to win three acting Oscars in the lead category, which was later matched by Daniel Day-Lewis and Frances McDormand. So, and it won't be matched by Kate Blanchett. I know people are like, oh, Kate Blanchett get her third Oscar this year, blah, blah, blah. And it, this is the Meryl Streep case as well. They, they won in supporting, not considered a lead. So the fact that Catherine Hepburn won three in the lead, huge deal at the time. So Catherine Hepburn, she gets her due, and it's this great moment, but she tied it with Barbara Streisand. Barbara Streisand, this is her first of two Career Academy Awards, and she would go on to win for Best Original Song for Evergreen from A Star is Born, the 1976 version. So reprising her role in the hit Broadway musical, Streisand earned rave, rave reviews for her portrayal of Fanny Bryce, the quintessential ugly duckling who blossoms into a sophisticated and beautiful star. And Hepburn had, did not show up to the ceremony, but Streisand was there. She was emotional, and she stole the moment cooing Hello Gorgeous when she accepted the Golden Oscar and looking at it. So both Hepburn and Streisand received 3,030 votes each. It was the first exact tie in a principal Oscar category. When Frederick Marsh, from when he performed Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and Wallace Beery, who was in The Champ, split the award for Best Actor in 1932, Beery had actually received one less vote than Marsh, and the rule at the time stated that if any nominated film or artist came within three votes of winning in a principal category, the result will be considered a tie. There have been other Oscar ties over the years, including Best Documentary Category in 1949 and 86, and for Best Live Action Short Film in 1986, and as well, and this doesn't include the sound editing category from, I think, 2012 or 13 between between Skyfall and what was in Zero Dark Thirty. I think both won that year. So pre- pretty remarkable. We love a tie. We love a moment. We lo- absolutely love moments. The fact that it's probably the biggest. What, this is maybe a, in terms of a notable moment in Oscar history, has to be in the top 10 that they tied. And especially can, between Catherine Hepburn and Barbara Streisand. Barbara Streisand is fairly new to the scene. Um, just like kind of like the big moment for it. Um, again, like I haven't seen the line of winter, so I'm leaving that review, you know, aside, but funny girl, Barbara Streisand's great in that movie. She completely handles the role in such a great and, and honest and sophisticated way. I think she sings beautifully. She, she very much embodies this Jewish New York woman who has this big family behind her. That's just trying to make it in the world. And it's absolutely hilarious at every moment like she is truly hilarious in this movie and she's just a great job so very happy to see her win for this movie i think it's well deserved and it's a, again just a great moment john what do you think about ties in the oscars and, and just how big of a moment this is for it to happen it's fascinating it's so cool i mean the odds of this happening as we've seen how limited times that's happened is just astronomically so low and I can't really say much about the performances. I was going to ask you about Barbara Streisand, but that was a nice little summary. And I, it's hard for me not to think about Lady Gaga as Fanny Bryce in a Funny Girl remake. Oh, my God. <laughs> she might be uh, getting no. too old now at this point. But yeah, that's but just don't, a... Don't redo Funny Girl. <laughs> you know what's don't coming. Don't redo it. And it'll probably oh. be Jonah Hill's sister, who I, again, forgot oh. her name. <laughs> no! No! <laughs> But um, it's fascinating. I mean, I do remember when we first came across it with Frederick March and Wallace Berry and just how fascinating I was all the way back, you know, 30 episodes ago, probably at this point. So it's 
it's so cool. Wow. It's funny to think that they just cut the Oscar in half and give it to to each of them, but no. Obviously, there's two Oscars. Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah. They Who gets the it, top? Like, Hold on, ladies. And just <laughs> smash it with a hammer. <laughs> Who wants the top half? You know, you want to keep the bottom half of Oscar, the most useful part of Oscar. Um, <laughs> Debatable. <laughs> Debatable. Debatable, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. And yeah, I mean, how many times the Lion in Winter has kind of popped up throughout these Academy Awards is making me desperate to watch it. And desperate just to watch more Catherine Hepburn films in, in general. I just haven't seen enough. It's been a, a big kind of blank spot on my film watching. Moving on to Best Actor. Best Actor went to Cliff Robertson for Charlie as Charlie Gordon. This is Robertson's first and only Academy Award win. Charlie stars Cliff Robertson as Charlie Gordon, an intellectually disabled adult who is selected by two doctors to undergo a surgical procedure that triples his IQ as it had done for a laboratory mouse who underwent the same procedure based on Flowers for Algernon, a science fiction short story from 1958. Cliff Robertson's performance in Charlie, which has received a mixed to negative reception from critics and audiences, engendered controversy when he won the Academy Award for Best Actor. Less than two weeks after the ceremony, Time mentioned that the Academy's generalized concerns over, quote, excessive and vulgar solicitation of votes, unquote, and said many members agreed that Robertson's award was based more on promotion than on performance. So this is just very topical in general with the 95th Academy Awards coming up. And we have, you know, Riseborough. Yeah, Andrea Riseborough. Thank you, Andrea Riseborough. And she has been nominated, and a lot of people have kind of questioned the viability of her nomination, how she kind of rose and, and to even be nominated about a film or from a film that has not been very just spoken about really at all. It's a very much an independent picture that is kind of very much quiet and doesn't have much press a very low budget and she's kind of popped up and appeared and has been nominated and it's kind of making rounds of how that happened and we won't go into the details of that because this is not an analysis of the 95th academy awards but it, it brings up the topic of pay to win or promotion to win which is essentially paying to win for a performance so it, this is such a hard topic and i think people can look at just the idea of us having worthy podcast or just having a podcast based on the Oscars is giving credit to the Academy Awards and it's even continually to justify like their means and and continues to show that like they're the real truth when it comes to like what's good in film and what's not but you know obviously we do this for a multitude of reasons and we especially don't make this podcast just to praise the Academy and I think we've made that very clear that that's not the case and talking about the Academy Awards is also very hard to do because not everything is public. There's so much of it that is like so secretive and hidden and behind the scenes that it is very hard to even like narrow down the truth with a, a lot of these things. So with Cliff Robertson, you know, coming out of nowhere and winning when some people don't even, didn't even think he deserved a nomination is is kind of questionable. And I think there's not much we can even say beyond that because it's like how could we ever prove that that's not the case unless something actually happened and and at that point he would probably lose his oscar his oscar entirely but all we can say is that ron moody rocked as fagin in oliver and i'm glad to see that he's nominated and that is just 
and just just crazy that a performance like Fagin could be nominated because I could not see in today's world that character and that goofy kind of persona that is Fagin would be nominated for this prestigious of an award, you know? Yeah, I agree. It, it's so out there, but I love that it is. And it's kind of my plea that I would love more comedic, more eccentric roles to be won and, not, and nominated for. So it's a, definitely a plea of many Oscar lovers. But moving on to the best director category, the winner is Carol Reed for Oliver. This is Reed's first Academy Award win out of three total nominations. The nominees for Best Director at the 1969 Academy Awards were announced by Ingrid Bergman, Natalie Wood, Diane Carroll, Rosalind Russell, and Jane Fonda. In a scripted introduction, they mocked the secondary nature of each of the female leads in the nominated films. Bergman stated they were somewhat reluctantly. Fonda and Russell stated that the directors had done their best to make female stars obsolete. Carroll said the only woman in Oliver sang two songs and got choked for her trouble. And receiving the award from Fonda, Reed made no reference to this introduction and his brief self-effacing acceptance speech. Pretty interesting. Again, this is one of those very modern feels to have like all these, you know, women come out there and poke fun at all the movies and talk about female representation in in movies and how unjust it is, still is unjust, and. It, it's like very on the nose like that's kind of like one of the good things about the oscars is they don't really have anyone to answer to they just can kind of say like hey maybe this should be how movies are done hey maybe do it like this so for all of them to come out there and say that and it had to have been produced and scripted that way is very interesting and uh i love it i love that it does that um should Carol reed have won for oliver when you have a Stanley <laughs> Kubrick just sitting right there. Or we all know. Just we all know Kubrick is the I, most I worthy. No I really we all know no that he should have won for this award in 1968 for Best Director, without a doubt. But what I will say is that it sounded like, from your knowledge, which is, again, much greater than mine about Oliver Twist, it sounded like there's a lot more to Oliver Twist in terms of the story, whether that's better or worse, uh, based on some of the changes that they made for this film adaptation. And this musical, but I think Carol Reed did a pretty damn good job at least taking what that book is about, adapting it to the screen. Whether he made the best film, in my opinion, I think we argued that there's things that could have changed to make it a better film. But in terms of an adaptation, taking Oliver and that overall story, I feel like it's it seems pretty accurate overall. And he did a great job creating this big grand musical. And it is kind of honoring the end of this musical era that we're kind of witnessing in the past couple of years and especially ending around 70 and 71 and then continuing on until all the way until 2002 where we see Chicago again reappear as a musical as Best Picture. So I think there's, there's definitely due credit for Carol Reed here. And I think he, he created something that I think a lot of people didn't think was possible. And he did a great job of like establishing us in this location of London. So. Before you get on to the best picture, I just want to say movies that were not nominated for best picture from 1968. So you have Rosemary's Baby, Planet of the Apes, 2001 A Space Odyssey, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, The Producers, Bullet, Once Upon a Time in the West, and The Creme de la Creme, <laughs> The Peace de la Resistance. 
the crown jewel of 1968. The absolute best thing to come out in cinema from 1968. <laughs> the Beatles' Yellow Submarine. You're crazy. <laughs> I, ain't crazy. I used to watch right. it a lot as a kid, so there there is actually a lot of sentimentality when it comes to that that movie. I was a big fan of it when I was a kid, and I had like a little toy submarine. I used to watch it once a year in college, and it was a whole tradition. It was great. Wow, I totally forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. At the end of every at the end I of every spring semester, that. I had to watch it. <laughs> Best movie, so good. So good. So, ri- ridiculous. This movie came out the same year as Oliver. <laughs> well, let's Show get what? into the full nomination list for the best picture of 1968. Romeo and Juliet. Rachel. Rachel. The Lion in Winter. Funny Girl. And the best picture of 1968, according to the Academy, is Oliver, produced by John Wolfe. Oliver became the only Best Picture winner to have received a G rating prior to winning. The rating system having replaced the old Hayes Code on November 1st, 1968, though a number of Best Picture winners have received the rating retroactively. It was the last British film to win Best Picture until Chariots of Fire in 1981 and the last musical to win until Chicago in 2002. A minor controversy was created when in a sketch on The Tonight Show, which was recorded three hours before the award ceremony, Johnny Carson and Buddy Hackett announced Oliver as the winner for Best Picture and Jack Albertson as Best Supporting Actor. Columnist Francis Drake claimed that the most observers believed Carson and Hackett were playing a huge practical joke or happened to make a lucky guess. Referring to it as the Great Carson Hoax, PricewaterCoopers stated in 2004 press release that it was later proven that Carson and Hackett made a few lucky guesses for their routine, dispelling the rumors of a security breach and keeping the integrity of the balloting process intact. Carson would go on to host the Oscar ceremony five times after the Great Carson Hoax. So, Ben, gimme them Best Picture stats. Yes, so Oliver has an 82% rating on Rotten Tomatoes with an average rating of an 8.1. The top critic percentage, though, is a 63%, with the average top critic rating being a 10. This is the weird stuff because there's only eight top critic reviews from that. So how the average rating is a 10, but the critic percentage is a 63. (laughs) little bizarre. Just saying. The audience score is an 81 of an average rating of 4.03 out of 5. IMDb is a 7.4. Metacritic is a 74. And it won five Oscars, including an honorary award. So six awards given out that night out of 11 nominations. John, what did you give Oliver? I gave Oliver a 72 out of 100, which sits a little bit above Ben-Hur at a 70. From here to eternity, a little bit higher at 78, and going my way from 1944 at a 70. So overall, I thought Oliver was, in terms of a musical, bringing it down to their musical numbers, 
pretty fantastic when it came to the musical numbers. I, I really enjoyed most of the song. I thought songs, the production of the overall musical numbers were really just engaging and they were larger than life. Maybe some of the biggest in terms of like cast members and, and organized choreographed dancing that we've probably ever seen in a movie. And I was just really impressed overall by the design of the world. However, I think we also established that we thought the story is just totally very inconsistent and totally all over the place. We think Oliver as a main protagonist in this film is just not really forward and center, especially when we get to the second half of the film. So it really loses steam and it gets kind of messy. And I think the film kind of throws things out the window in order to wrap up tightly and get Oliver to his real home. So that's why I'm kind of knocking off those points for it. I just think overall as a film, it really is just burdened by the story and burdened by this char- this protagonist that just doesn't have much agency. He just kind of gets tossed around and really the last 30 minutes, Oliver is just mainly crying in a corner or being like yelled at to climb a tower to put a rope on. Uh, so... Uh, unfortunately it gets kind of broken <laughs> broken down that way for me but still kind of respectable i think still an enjoyable film and i think if you love musicals it's definitely worth a watch but ben what did you give oliver so i gave oliver a 73 so one point above you not trying to one-up you at all uh really i guess like, i agree with all of your points I don't know. I guess maybe the one thing I liked a little bit more and I gave a lot more praise to was Fagan's performance. I thought thought Ron Moody was truly spectacular in the movie. He really carries it. He makes it fun, energetic. There's this real life to it that is is what makes it interesting to watch. But then when you lose so much of, of Oliver's point of view, the plot gets muddied. The There really is no direction in, in the film you just lose its way and you come back when Fagin's there. You get you get a little engrossed here and there, reviewing situations, such a good number. Um, pick a pocket or two, another good one. Like though those ones are like what really drives the the musical and drives the the film itself. The technical stuff, as I said, like really interesting. I really thought the cinematography was fascinating. There's some really really dynamic things that they that they do and go out there to do that I wasn't expecting the first time around when watching it. So I really gotta commend it for that. But otherwise it's 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 like just below average where it's like passable, but I don't know. I, I understand though why it won because it was a family movie. Kids could watch it, adults could watch it. It the themes went back and forth and so it's easy accessible. Whereas I guess some of these other movies, as much as I love them as an adult, I can understand why Rosemary's Baby wouldn't have won. I can understand why 2001 A Space Odyssey is too out there. Planet of the Apes, I can understand, is like horrifying for little kids to see. So I get it. Anyways, John, your average rating through 41 movies seen is a 73.4, and I'm at a 76.02. So just a straight up 76. John, you got to tell me, is Oliver worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1968? No, I don't think Oliver is worthy. You know, it's actually one of those tricky, tricky, tricky topics because it's like 2001 A Space Odyssey in terms of cinema. 
watching a film and like experiencing something truly getting taken on a ride in terms of the story and visually like having your mind completely open up from the visuals of 2001 clearly i think one of the best films of the year but but when you look at like an action film like bullet that i think kind of established modern action in the 70s and 80s that's a huge deal once upon a time in the west continued to you know inspire western and filmmakers like quentin tarantino and uh, american filmmakers in the early 90s late 90s and then you have chitty chitty bang bang which we both have like that personal connection with a hilarious film like the producers rosemary's baby which is known as like a lot of people's favorite horror film if not some people's favorite movie of all time planet of the apes 2001 like there's so many huge films that came out this year that have like been just chiseled in cinema and cinematic history that are just so prominent you know it's it's so easy to think about some of these films and how they're just great landmarks in cinema so it's really hard to look at something like oliver and say it's worthy when it does feel kind of more forgotten over time and i don't really know why that is i'm assuming it's just the story of oliver maybe it's just so dated at this time where we're just so advanced when it comes to technology and communication that like this is just so out of people's understanding of like how they could relate to oliver as a kid at this point maybe that's it maybe i'm just completely adding way too much bullshit to it but i don't think it's worthy but the hard part for this is like out of the other areas here like i haven't seen funny girl so i'm really curious to see if that would stack up so i'm really curious ben is funny girl in terms of the nominations your favorite no well <laughs> oh well okay wait you said nominate i heard just favorite uh, yeah out of the nominations yes a funny girl would if I, out of the five i yeah i guess i would vote for funny girl but the, uh, n- I, none of these maybe funny girl would be in there but if i had to put it f- from all the movies 2001 would be up there the producers would be in there rosemary's baby would be in there plan of the apes would be there uh and then i guess that fifth spot would go to like a funny girl or maybe even oliver but i would i'd automatically go to 2001 and if not 2001 i don't know producers because that's like the most like oscary out of <laughs> the out of the five that i listed yeah so it it's it's a it's cool again like i really like this oscar ceremony because of like what it represents and, and the movies that are nominated and the films that get talked about like that's really cool but they don't it's very subtle they don't get all these like big recognitions they deserve or even recognized at all but they're still there um just to kind of quickly answer i don't think oliver is worthy of the award unfortunately it's still like a fine movie but it is not worthy of best picture but then think about it for 40 so it's 41 movies 41 years of hollywood it's all come up to this and we see some really cool progression and john think about it. i'm gonna babble on you Think about the next 41, because in 41 movies from Oliver, that leads us right to The Hurt Locker. So think about all those <laughs> movies that come up between then, what it leads up to the next 41 gets to Hurt Locker. Same year as Avatar. Uh, was it same year as Up is also that year? Or maybe Up's the year after. I think Toy Story might flip it around either year. Um, so many great movies. What also came out that year? Um, was The Wrestler that year? Or the Dark Knight came out the year before. Like, just think about like all these like just really great movies that come out around that time, and just the forty years that lead up to it. It's really cool. 
um, to see like where we're getting off the musical train, but we're about to enter this whole new stratosphere and and level of cinema that that we're used to that we like seeing. So I think it's going to be a really fun part of the journey. These next steps. Uh, John, is there any final thoughts on 1968, the 41st Academy Awards? Oliver, floor is yours. Boy, one boy, boy for sale. Shut up and drink your gin. <laughs> All right, I think that's it. That's it for Oliver. He's dead. We did no, it. Oliver's not dead. Thanks for listening. No, Nancy's <laughs> dead. Nancy's okay, dead. can the we get a dead. hashtag the justice movie. for Nancy, please? Hashtag. If we have an Oliver, <laughs> an Oliver's, it would have to be Nancy, the spinoff movie. The o- Nancy, the the OCU really needs to be. It's, a thing. it's the fact that the OC. <laughs> we have to do it. We this is what it is. It. It's think about <laughs> think about the Bullseye TV show, John. Think how many kids are gonna love the Bullseye? TV no, dude, show. it's gonna be the spinoff movie Nancy, where it's very Kill Bill esque. You think Nancy died? There's a reason why they didn't show her behind that little pillar there. Nancy gets buried. She's still alive. She has to dig her way out, and it's a revenge thriller to find Bill Sykes. Turns out Bill Sykes is dead. You know who's next? Oliver. She's on a chase after Oliver. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs> I'm John. <laughs> oh, Oliver, you're gonna fucking get it. I'm Ben, and, and this, this is worthy. worthy. What happens when I'm seventeen? Must come a time, seventeen. When you're old and it's cold and who cares if you live or you die Your one consolation's the money you may have put by The situation I'm a bad and the bad I shall stay. You'll be seeing no transformation. But it's wrong to be a rogue in every way. I don't want nobody hurt for me or made to do the dirt for me. This rotten life is not for me. It's getting far too hot for me. There is no in-between for me. But who will change the scene for me? Don't want no one to rob for me. But who will find a job for me? I think I better think it out again! Thanks for listening to Worthy, the breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. Listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at Worthy Pod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to worthysubmissions at gmail.com. That's worthysubmissions at gmail.com.